Previously on season one of the British Broadcasting Century podcast, from Marconi to Reith. Take the headphones. Chelmsford was, I think, the first broadcasting station in the world. I understand that Ditcham mostly recited the times of trains. They said, would you come? They want a girl's voice. Official frowned on using radio for amusement and shut us up. We were anxious to know whether the government would permit firms like ours to exploit broadcasting here as in America. We were eventually appointed to do this thing called broadcasting. Hello, CQ. This is 2 Emma Talk Rittle Testing. We in the North felt ourselves in competition with Marconi in the South. Through long negotiations between the government and various interested parties. Brought about the formation of the BBC. My wife, Jane, she's the wildly thunderbrain. Here I am again with my old string bag. Thus, the British Broadcasting Company came into being. 14th November 1922. To Marconi House, London, calling. 5IT, the General Electric Company's works, Witten, Birmingham. Hello, this is 5IT. And 2ZY at the Trafford Park, Manchester, the next day. This is 2 Z Y calling. And ten points if you spotted that was Guglielmo Marconi, H. J. Round, Peter Eckersley, Winifred Collins, Dame Nellie Melba, Arthur Burrows, Lord Reith, Kenneth Wright, Ernie Main, Helena Millay, and A. E. Thompson. Well done you. This time, the first BBC entertainers. Alongside one of the most recent. Delighted to be joined by the broadcasting BMOth. That is, Mr. Lee Mack. I'm not sure how I feel about being called a beer moth because um, I've stopped drinking and I'm genuinely scared of moths. <laughs> uh, I don't think I really know what a beer moth is. What is a beer I think moth? It's just a big thing. I think it's just a big, like a giant you, thing. You, you call, you introduced me as a beer moth, and now you're telling me you're not sure. <laughs> it's like that's quite worrying. Yes, Lee Mack joins us, as do the first BBC entertainers from 99 years earlier, kicking off season two of the British Broadcasting Century. This is London Collins. Hello, hello. Welcome back to season two. I'm Paul Carenza. Did you enjoy the specials? I do hope you did. It's like we never went away because, well, we didn't go away, really. The specials were actually meant to buy me some time to do some other work. But, um, well, the specials got a little bit time consuming when I decided not to just upload a long form thing, but to, for example, uh, record a parliamentary reenactment involving about 20 voices. And how about Percy Edgar's episode? last time. I hope you enjoyed that. My thanks again to David Edgar for reading his grandfather's memoir for us. And do stay tuned at the end of this episode for a little listener feedback from the Percy Edgar episode. It all brought us to day two of the BBC and so to season two. While season one brought us the backstory of the Beeb, season two will cover the first year and a bit of the BBC. November the 16th, 1922, to New Year's Eve 1923. That's the plan. The start of the show there gave you season one. If you would like a half-hour version, I've actually recorded a special episode for the History of England podcast, and that sums up the backstory of the Beeb for them. That will be out on their podcast around late June. I will update the show notes of this podcast with the link over there as soon as that is out. The History of England podcast is a fantastic and thorough resource, well worth a look at their mighty back catalogue, and it was an honour to be asked to contribute an episode for them on our story so far. 
However you get to it then, we're up to day three of the Beeb. That's where we are chronologically. This episode will just really cling to that third day of the Beeb. This episode is less about the big story of radio. We won't hear quite yet how our heroes Burroughs, Eckersley and Reith are getting on, or not getting on with each other. No, this is a snapshot of entertainment before the dramas to come. Next time, we will go from day four up until about, I don't know, day 20 or 30. But for now, the first songs, the first stars and stand-up of the BBC. We will tell you everything you need to know, and a lot that you didn't, about Auntie's first foray into fun. Plus, a much more recent broadcast entertainer, one of everybody's favourites and certainly one of my favourite employers, Lee Mack, on the earliest broadcasting that inspired him. My first recollection of seeing something comedic uh, and, you know, this might be wrong, of course, but this is what I remember, is in the early 70s, there was a sort of precursor to The Simpsons that very few people remember, and it was called Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. And it was an unusual cartoon in that it was aimed mainly at adults. Kids could watch it simply because it looked like a cartoon. But actually, um, it was very adult-orientated. Not so much the language, just just the the, the subject matter. Like you had the next door neighbour who was convinced the communists were trying to take over America. Right. And so he was always hiding behind the hedge. And, you know, he'd always look over the hedge and go, hey, the communists are taking over. And he'd hide again. And then you'd have... So it, it, it was fascinating to watch because I'd never seen a cartoon that had subject matter that I didn't understand because I didn't understand most of it. But it was a treat because we were allowed to watch it and have a curly-whirly. <laughs> and well, that was a big thing in our ass. And now you can have that every time you watch TV if you want to. You can do that. Yeah, yeah. you obviously don't know my wife. More from Lee later. I actually write bits and pieces for his sitcom Not Going Out. But apart from that and a few other freelance bits and pieces, I am not a BBC employee. This is not a BBC podcast. I stress to add, this is not made with, by, through or here and under the present day BBC at all. In fact, we're not talking about this BBC. We're talking about the old BBC, not the British Broadcasting Corporation, but the British Broadcasting Company. So let's go back to their first entertainers. Indeed, what has been called the first entertainment show of the BBC, as Auntie Beeb began its third day of broadcasting 99 years ago. But hang on a moment. The first entertainment show of the Beeb didn't last episode. We say that day two in Birmingham had an entertainment concert. Well, yes. To explain then, you'll recall that at this point, the BBC is three stations until Newcastle joins about six weeks in. So day one was just London broadcasting. Day two was Birmingham broadcasting from 5.20pm to 1am and Manchester launched just an hour later. 5IT Birmingham included a concert of sorts. Percy Edgar. I sent down half a dozen artists on the first night. They had to uh, remember that they were not singing to the audience up in the back row of the gallery, but literally were talking and singing to them in their homes. But, um, oh, we got over the difficulties all right, and I think it was a fairly successful evening. So what's with this first BBC entertainment programme that London's claiming the day after Birmingham's? Is this the London-centric nature of broadcasting starting already, three days in? Well, yes, I think it slightly is, because Birmingham definitely staged a show the night before. It happened to be the night of the general election, and we stayed on to give out election results which were telephoned to us as they came in from the local press agency. 
Day two of the BBC had Walter Hurd on flute, Walter Randall on piano, Vincent Curran, elocutionist, and a full roster of other instrumentalists. So why isn't this the BBC's first entertainment concert? Well, firstly, it's music. There's no comedian that I can see in there, although I don't quite know what an elocutionist is doing there. But secondly, there is an argument that Birmingham actually wasn't the BBC yet. Some say it was. In fact, the official record holds that it was. They would say that when Birmingham launched on November the 15th, it was as BBC as the rest of them, just as much as London and Manchester. It gets complicated, right? They were all operating at this point on behalf of the Broadcasting Committee. That was the term at this stage. Technically, the British Broadcasting Company wasn't registered as a company until December the 15th. Technically, the BBC did not exist for the first month. And yet, the BBC themselves claim November the 14th as their birthday. Technically, though, the licence also didn't come through until January the 18th the next year. Technically, the BBC was broadcasting unlicensed for the first two months. Yet technically, there's a lot of technicalities going on here, the Broadcasting Committee, this gang of wireless industry bosses, they were babysitting the company until John Reith took over at the end of 1922. Technically, it's very difficult to work out exactly when it's officially, legally, properly the BBC. So many technicalities. The BBC had better employ some technicians soon enough then. Oh, yes, technically there are no staff at this point either. But Birmingham does have an extra reason that it wasn't quite BBC yet for the first few days. This from Percy Edgar, the Birmingham station boss, in the Radio Times, September the 10th, 1937. He wrote... On November the 18th, 1922, the British Broadcasting Company took over the temporary station from the Western Electric and the call sign, which had been 2WP for three days, was changed to 5IT, the two letters being taken from the word Witten. And Witten is where they were based. So if Edgar is right, the Birmingham November the 15th concert was pre-BBC by four days. I should point out that Reith and the official BBC record has it that Birmingham fell under the BBC straight away. So Birmingham BBC, when did it start? It's debatable. I am pedantic, but hey, if I don't get the facts right, who will? So let's say that Birmingham doesn't qualify as BBC by a few days then. That means that the Manchester station had the first BBC live entertainment, although Manchester only had one live entertainer that night. After news and Kitty's Corner, you would hear, technically, the first funny man of the BBC, Mr X's Funny Stories, real name Captain Hugh G. Bell. Yeah, Hugh G. Bell, that's the bit that sounds like a fake name. Perhaps that's why Huge Bell preferred the name Mr X. Huge Bell actually wasn't a professional entertainer. He was an engineer. He'd actually designed the entire Manchester station, but he would also broadcast these funny stories. And even if the official old BBC record didn't recognise him, I think, yeah, he was the first funny man of the BBC. We've played this clip of him before on the podcast in episode 19, but as the BBC's first jester, let's give him his moment once again. Here's Mr X, a.k.a. Huge Bell, a.k.a. Captain H.G. Bell, reminiscing on the first night. We had equipment there. Nobody knew an awful lot about it. If we got something good, and everybody said, ooh, hold it, don't, don't alter anything. And uh, very likely uh, the next night was a washout. Anyway, that night... Uh, it had worked the day before, we had our fingers crossed, and when the deadline came, we breathed a, a, a prayer, I think, and, and put the switch in, and it worked. 
Everybody thought we were wizards. <laughs> I think we thought we were wizards too. It's worth stating as well that Hugh Bell wasn't Britain's first radio entertainer in the BBC era. On 2MT Riddle, Peter Eckersley was still broadcasting jollity on Tuesday evenings, including, in fact, the BBC's very first night. But 2MT Riddle was not a BBC station. It was in the BBC era, but it was out on its own. See season one for all the reasons behind that. Eckersley had started things going and he was the biggest radio star in the country just six months earlier. But at this point, he was too left field for the mainstream of British broadcasting. Eckersley was now just shouting into his mic in that Essex hut just for fans. Imagine Game of Thrones was axed but continued as a podcast. Poor Eckersley. I do think that before administration and organisation overtook the BBC... There was a certain naturalness that although it was perhaps not so beautifully regulated, not so suave, so polished, so dressed in spats as it may be today, nevertheless there was a spirit that came over of people trying and of possibly not succeeding, which to me, as a listener, is much more exciting than almost anything else. So I don't know how you decide what officially counts as the first BBC entertainers. It's literally a minefield. All right, not literally. Either way, this is all preamble to say that the official BBC record is that day three, November the 16th in London, was the first BBC entertainment show. Cecil Lewis, who started as Deputy Director of Programmes the following month, named it the first entertainment the BBC ever put on for its listeners. We, of course, know better. But it was still the first on the BBC in London, so let us see who was on. The first live entertainers of the unregistered, unlicensed, ignoring Birmingham, ignoring Manchester, British Broadcasting Company. Can you see that I'm cross about all this? History is not simple, it turns out. Live from 2LO on day three of the Beeb, your first live entertainers are introduced by our old-fashioned radio voice. On November the 16th, on London 2LO, your regular music maestro, Stanton Jeffries, is at the piano from 7pm for over an hour of musical and humorous delights. There are three vocalists, a flautist, a violinist and an entertainer. The first song of BBC 2LO in London, the one to go down in history as the first song of the BBC, even though technically the night before in Birmingham and Manchester they both played music, but it wasn't London where head office is, so it doesn't really count. No, the first song of the BBC, officially is Drake Goes West, sung by baritone Leonard Hawke. Drake is going west, lad. Is a ship in the bay. According to Reith biographer Gary Allegan, the BBC allowed Leonard Hawke to drop out of radio prominence, like the mayfly he had done his life work, to inaugurate BBC broadcasting. Somewhere in the marble halls of Langham Place, a plaque commemorating this historic achievement of Leonard Hawke should be installed. Well, poor Leonard Hawke is still waiting. Officially, the second song of the BBC was Leonard Hawke singing a song called TikTok, clearly as a prophecy of today's most recent form of mass communication. Back then, TikTok was on the BBC. Now the BBC is on TikTok. Leonard Hawke would return for the New Year's Eve show to close 1923, a year and a bit later. Not much else is known about this singer, though. So which other forgotten stars were on that apparently first entertainment show then? Well, after Lenny Hawke, it was tenor Bruce McKay singing Andanta by Anderson and Serenade by Goodall. Not Howard Goodall, he is sometime later. 
a flute solo from Glyn Dowell, and then the first recorded professional entertainer of the BBC, the first comedian credited as a humorist, Mr Billy Beer. Now, I've been in touch with a present-day relative of Billy Beer. He's also called Bill Beer. Hello, Bill, if you are listening. Bill has put together a lovely little site dedicated to his grandfather's cousin, I think is the relationship, Billy Beer himself. We'll put the link to that site in the show notes. And that tells us that this first BBC comedian was 30 years old when he made his broadcasting debut. A very talented man. Billy Beer could play five instruments at once and the piano with his feet. All very well. None of that shows up on radio, of course. He gave over 600 concerts for the troops during World War I. Billy was a singer, a comedian, an all-round entertainer, and he wrote most of his own material. On that first BBC Entertainment show, he performed two pieces, one called I Knew There Was a Catch in It and one called The Parish Magazine. Two other acts followed Billy Beer on that first night. There was a contralto called Lily Clare singing A Summer Night by Goring Thomas. No, me neither. And then A Little Silver Ring by someone else. And then Dorothy Chalmers closed the show with her violin solos Hymn to the Sun by Rimsky-Korsakov and Rosamond by Schubert. Ah, classic and old school. As for our comedian, though, Billy Beer returned to the Beeb on December the 20th that year, performing the same two pieces and a third comic piece called The Syncopated Village Blacksmith. He was more of a star of stage than radio, even going forward from there. He was very popular when touring, including Punch and Judy shows in Hearn Bay and seaside specials, largely in Kent. So it was three years, actually, before his next broadcast that we know of, November 1925, when Billy Beer was listed as William Beer, entertainer at the piano. Apparently his fourth and final broadcast from London once again was on August the 18th, 1926. Soon before he died, his 14-year-old daughter Vera appeared on Children's Hour with Uncle Mac in 1936. And Billy Beer was buried in an unmarked grave in Wilston Cemetery. It goes to show those who went first are not remembered nearly enough. Remembering our old school broadcasters is part of what this podcast is about. And in terms of memorials for legendary comedians, Lee Mack has got something in mind. Now, I've been writing with Lee on his sitcom Not Going Out since it began, and I can honestly say it was a dream come true for me to be writing for Bobby Ball, playing Lee's dad in that sitcom. I grew up watching Cannon and Ball on stage, on TV. I saw them in Panto in the 80s. And then getting to write for Bobby on TV was something very special for me. Until, of course, Bobby sadly left us last year. We are writing the next series of Not Going Out as we speak. We don't know quite yet how we're going to mark the departure of Bobby's character. But Lee has got a plan involving some other comic legends. Can I mention not going out because I have been delighted to be uh, working with you on that on and off for, I don't know, oh. over a decade now, which is I've an incredibly long time. Well over a decade. Yeah, and you've been in not going out as well, haven't you? Yeah, well, in fact, the episode that I was a wedding guest as a, as a, as a cameo in was yeah. when the same episode, Tommy Cannon was the uh, the cameo as the vicar. And then, of yeah. course, uh, our dear friend Bobby Ball, who, who so sadly, of course, we lost recently. I'm actually thinking of doing an episode. I don't know yet. This is very early days, but... I'm thinking of starting the next series with with a sort of funeral episode for my fictional father. And and Tommy, um, I mean, I haven't even asked Tommy this yet, so he might not do it. But Tommy was the the priest that, that married us. Because yes. I thought it might be the last ever episode when we did the, the marriage episode. So I thought, wouldn't it be a nice touch if... if if um, Bobby was the best man and Tommy was the 
the person that the, the, the priest or the vicar priest or vicar i never quite know what the right either or is. yeah i think priest covers more than just a vicar so you've got vicars and curates and, min- and other things so we so, want to make it yeah. non-denomination exactly. say 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 priest yeah, exactly have that right yeah. so, well he was the priest and uh, it was a lovely moment actually because um the, the camera sort of panned round slowly so you saw tommy doing the thing he got a massive mm. cheer mm. and um there was also a moment in that which we thought it might it might be the final ever episode. So I said to, to, to Bobby, we'll break the fourth wall and I want you, when I, when we say, how are you keeping your trousers up, uh, which was relevant to the story, <laughs> how are you keeping your trousers up, I want you to get the red braces out, you know, because that was his famous yeah. famous sort of catchphrase thing he used to do is, is tweak his red braces. And he did it. We said, cut. And then I said, sorry, can we go again? And I, I wasn't joking. I said, Bob, um, I'm not sure, sure you did that correctly. And he went, I've been pulling these red braces for 50 years and you're telling me I didn't do it properly. And he never let me forget. So I'm thinking of having him as the as the priest at the at the at the funeral and also bring bring some comics in of, of that generation. Get Sid Little in. So all, all his mates, as in my dad's mates that I've never met, that will be the story. That would you know, be lovely. That would be bring lovely. them all in. Who and- doesn't want to see a, a, a scene that opens up with Sid Little, Fra- Freddie, Parrotface Davis and the like, all just sitting around? It'd be marvellous, wouldn't it? It'd be beautiful. While we're doffing our caps to old school comedians, let's go right back to 1922 and a few entertainers beyond that first night of entertainment in London on November the 16th. Because there were comedians on radio before the BBC launched, of course. Now, we covered many of these pre-BBC humorists on our Loose Ends episode, number 21, if you'd like to go back and listen. From Will Hay to Millay. That rhymes rather nicely. That's Helena Millay as our Lizzie. You could hear her in our opening montage on this episode. Uh, but I says I'm ashamed of you, drinking your tea out of the saucer. Well, Marie says, if I drink it out of the cup, the blinking spoon goes up me nose. Here's another pre-BBC radio comic that we've not mentioned yet, who was on a similar time to Helena Malay, October the 18th, a month or so before the Beeb began. You could have heard George Roby, the Prime Minister of Mirth, as he was known. He appeared on Two Hello before the BBC took it over. George Roby would sing songs like this one. As a rule, I'm not cheap, and my kisses I keep. For my parents, my dog and my cat. Bar a few grenadiers and the Welsh fusiliers. It's the first time I've ever done that. George Roby was a big music hall star for decades before the Beeb and for decades after. The new style of radio comedy was not an easy transition for these live performers. One of the first BBC comedians, Billy Merson, wrote this article around the end of 1922 or the start of 23. Making the world laugh by wireless... To an artiste who is familiar with the inspiration that big audiences stretching beyond the footlights bring to a stage performer, it is something of an ordeal to sing into a wireless transmitting set, as I did recently at Marconi House. For the contrast is so marked, a comparatively bare room full of electrical apparatus on the one hand, and a crowded theatre on the other. In the near future, when broadcasted songs and music become general, I anticipate that I and my fellow artists will become used to the novelty of the venture and be able to radiate humour, drama or sentiment as effectively as is possible on the stage. I think it will be quite possible to sing into a transmitting apparatus with abandon and zest as though the inspiration of brilliant lights, costumes and scenery and applauding audiences were there. Dancing, facial mannerisms and dumb show acting that are all a valuable part of the stage comedian's laughter-raising efforts cannot be radiated. 
And may I say, as a comedian, after a year of doing Zoom shows instead of live performances, yep, that reluctant need to adapt to technology is certainly true today. Without an audience, it's not easy. Another pre-BBC radio act that we've previously mentioned on the podcast is Ernie Main. And again, you'll have heard him in the opening montage at the start of this episode. Or you could have heard him on October the 11th, 1922, when he broadcast on Tuolo a month and a bit prior to the BBC's launch, an experimental broadcast for the Girls' Friendly Society fate, with his novelty song written especially for the occasion, Wireless on the Brain. She went and bought a wireless headset, what's the wreck I feel? We have a blooming opera now with every blinking wheel. Now, a handful of comedy songs about radio were starting to come in in late 1922 because radio was becoming topical. It was the thing of the year. So here's an oddity. This is a song also from 1922 about the BBC. As far as we know, this was never actually played on the BBC back then. Scottish entertainer Tommy Lorne. Put on your earphones, tune on your set, listen in at half past three. Sit well back, we're going to have a crack from Antiaggy of the BBC. The first song we know of that is actually about and referencing the BBC. Auntie Aggie of the BBC, indeed. No one seems to know quite why Tommy Lorne chose to make this song. Presumably just wireless was in the air, as well as on the air, and it was a novelty song capturing the mood of the day. Some say that Tommy Lorne was the first to call the BBC auntie. Others say that the auntie moniker grew out of the uncles and aunts in the children's hour. As for the first song about radio globally, over in America earlier in 1922, you could have heard the Ziegfeld Follies with Listening On Some Radio. The first song we know of about radio, capitalising on that thing du jour, this trend of the moment, the wireless. Before we go, a little more behind-the-scenes insight and a theory that I want to put to Would I Lie to Use, Lee Mack. My wife is a psychologist. When Whenever we watch Would I Lie to You, she reckons she's spotted a way to work out who's lying. Just that this is my round. The person who we claim to know. Yeah, the person who claim to know. Whoever is lying, she always says, when the camera zooms out, the person who, who actually does know that person doesn't look at the person when they come on. And the other two people ah. often instinctively sort of, you know, if someone walks in the room, you glance at them, go, oh, hello. But the person yeah. who, who knows them deliberately, not looking or last to look. And then she'll always go, it's that one. And she's mostly right, apart from when she's ah, that, I'll tell you why that doesn't quite hold up, because I know something about the show that your wife doesn't know, which is it's you, you read from the card, but the one time you don't read from the card is when the person walks on. Ah. When the person walks on, you've got to just know it. You've got to learn learn the phraseology. Mm. And even if you're telling the truth, it's sometimes hard because you've got to say it exactly as the producers want you to say it, even if it's true. And so me and David, having done this for many years, it's fair to say are just a bit slacker than the guests in learning it. So even though we're not supposed to read it, we'll, we'll jot down a little note on the desk, we'll put it there, and then we'll, we'll just surreptitiously just have a little glance to remind ourselves. Mm. So when the person's walking on, we're not looking at the person because we're just reminding ourselves of what it is. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> so, that, so that falls down. But that could be that. if one of the guests doesn't mm. look good system, could be could one be. which I will now be using. Meanwhile, in our timeline of the old BBC, we are still on day three of the Beeb. We're making very slow progress, I admit. We will speed up, I promise you. Definitely next time we're going to cover a good few weeks 
Beyond the third day of the BBC, there was, you guessed it, the fourth day of the BBC. That came with more entertainment. The second recorded entertainer, American raconteur's Helen Marr. That's November the 17th, 1922. And also on that day, 2LO boss Arthur Burroughs, the first voice of the Beeb, he sent what he calls the most historic order of the day in the history of broadcasting. It is quite a memo. Find out what was on it next time as we explore the first BBC listings. Before we go, though, I did promise you some follow-up from the previous episode, the special on Percy Edgar, the first station boss in Birmingham. Now, he joined on air a few days in, November the 21st. Well, we also mentioned Percy's son, Barry, who helped inspire Children's Hour as a baby. And then as a man, Barry produced hundreds of BBC shows, from Songs of Praise to Gardener's World to Come Dancing to the first BBC TV programme to the 1948 London Olympics, including some on-air commentary. And it's about that that BBC Radio Norfolk's Paul Hayes got in touch. Hello, my name's Paul Hayes and I'm a radio producer for the BBC based in Norwich. And also, like probably most of us who listen to this podcast, a broadcasting history enthusiast. So, what am I doing here right now, given that East Anglia was a bit of a wasteland for the BBC at this point, and for many years after? No station with a single digit followed by two letters here. There were no BBC staff based in East Anglia until an emergency transmitter was opened at the Cayley's Chocolate Factory in Norwich during the Second World War, and no actual proper radio studio until as late as 1956. Well, I'm butting in because after the recent special on Percy Edgar and the mention of his son Barry, I was left thinking to myself... Where do I know the name Barry Edgar from? It turns out it was from research I did a couple of years ago at the wonderful BBC Written Archive Centre at Caversham in Berkshire when I was making a documentary about a man called Jimmy Jewell. No, not the famous comedian. You have to count the L's at the end. Two for Arthur James Jewell, or AJ Jewell as he was often known, who led quite a life. He was one of the very first pilots to fly from an aircraft carrier in the First World War, a top-level referee who took the FA Cup final in 1938, which was the first one to be shown on television. He then became the manager of Norwich City, which is how I got to make a documentary about him, and during the Second World War he may even have been the England manager, although sadly I wasn't able to absolutely prove that. But after the war, in the late 1940s, he became the BBC's first ever regular television football commentator. Yes, I know what you're all thinking. Surely that was Kenneth Wilsonholm. Well, Ken didn't come into the story until late 1950, becoming Jules' deputy, until poor old Jimmy suddenly died of a massive stroke in October 1952, and Wilsonholm got the top job, with the rest being history. But before that, Jewell had been the commentator on most of the post-war matches, including the first ever international football tournament to be shown on BBC television at the London Olympics of 1948. And alongside him was someone who was usually a producer rather than on air, Barry Edgar. This doesn't seem to have been too unusual, though, with various producers also taking up the microphone from time to time during this period, with Peter Dimmock perhaps being the most famous example. Of course, in 1948, preserving any of the television output was still very rare and experimental, so all we have in the archives of the live TV coverage of the Games is a little bit of the opening ceremony, with Richard Dimbleby commentating. There, we've, we've come over very abruptly to our side, because here, before we expected it, is the last torch being brought to Wembley Stadium, an escort of motorcycle police and cars round it, and in the centre... From the documentation, though, we know that Barry Edgar and Jimmy Jewell commentated on four full games of the Olympic football tournament, all of them played at Wembley Stadium, the two semi-finals and the bronze and gold medal matches. So, Barry Edgar was present for some notable firsts. 
On the 10th of August, the commentary on the first semi-final between Sweden and Denmark was both the first ever full football match between two foreign teams to be shown live on British television and the first ever evening kickoff to be shown. The light usually presented them with terrible problems at this point, even for afternoon games, but as it was August, it was obviously good enough all the way through in this case. The following evening, Edgar and Jewell commentated on the second semi-final as Matt Busby's Great Britain team lost to Yugoslavia. And then, on Friday the 13th, they did the bronze medal match in the afternoon and the gold medal match in the evening, the first time ever that two full football matches were broadcast live on television on the same day, something we're well used to now, of course, whenever the World Cup or the European Championship rolls around. Barry Edgar doesn't seem to have ever dipped his toe into football commentary again, but Jimmy Jewell was the voice of the cup final, England matches and many more besides until his tragic death at the age of just 54. Jimmy did get at least one more first in, though. He's the voice on the earliest bit of live British television football coverage to exist in the archives. A few minutes of an England v Italy game from November 1949. Aston, very nice header there to Billy Wright. Through the middle, and Morty under, onto, oh, beautiful, thank you by Rodney Bowden, drive one, oh, and a wonderful save. Obviously, at this point, though, that's all in the future. Back in the 1920s, Barry Edgar is still just a child and Jimmy Jewell is an insurance clerk rising up the refereeing ranks. If you'd like to know more about Jimmy's extraordinary life, then my documentary The Lost Voice of Football is still available as a podcast on BBC Sounds. But I now return you to the 20s, with apologies to Paul for the length of my interruption. Paul Hayes there. We will link to Paul's documentary podcast The Lost Voice of Football in the show notes. I know we mention these show notes quite a lot, Basically, it's the bit of text that comes with the podcast, so you can go into it on your device, on your computer, and find some links that will send you off down rabbit holes galore in this wonderful world of radio history. My thanks to Paul Hayes. My thanks to Lee Mack, who gave us that interview as part of a fundraiser for a young woman's operation. You can go to gofundme.com slash savejenny to find out more and donate there if you would like to. Thank you to the many publications, books and the like that have helped to shape this episode, especially Dennis Gifford's 50 Years of Radio Comedy and Brian Hennessy's Emergence of Broadcasting in Britain. Invaluable works, I must say. I also want to thank a few of you who have sent me marvellous broadcasting things and artefacts and bits and pieces to land on my doormat. Stuart Henderson, Russ Inman, Mark Warburton, Sue Howson. Hardly a week goes by without some new rare, bizarre book or magazine or pamphlet being delivered by the postie. The library keeps on growing here. We are nothing if not thorough here at the British Broadcasting Century. I'm sure you already know that. So thank you, folks, and thanks to those who support the show on Patreon as well. Your support there helps minimise the loss. I won't say we're into profit yet on this show, but hey, it's not about the profit, is it? It's about the loss minimisation while enjoying putting this stuff out there. So thank you, Patreons. Do consider joining if you haven't already. Head to patreon.com slash paulcarenza and you will currently find some extra bits and pieces, including a video interview that I've done with Diddy David Hamilton and Professor Gabriel Balby, the media history professor, who talks to me about burrows at Marconi's. More on that here soon. And you'll also find a video tour of my radio history bookshelf. That was quite fun to do. And other writings and things besides. Patreon.com slash paulcarenza if you would like to. Thank you. And let me also say I have another podcast called A Paul Carenza Podcast, where I have longer form interviews, mostly with people not to do with radio history. But I'm also going to put there some of the longer interviews, including Gareth Jones, who you'll have heard a few episodes ago. And if you go way back on A Paul Carenza Podcast, you can hear an early podcast I did called The Heptagon Club, which interviews people like Miranda Hart, Tim Vine, Sally Phillips and many other great comedians of today. 
Next time, though, we're going back to the old BBC once again for the first BBC listings, nearly a year before the Radio Times, three weeks before the man who thought of the Radio Times, that's John Reith, will have everything we need to know about November the 17th to December the 7th, 1922. Hear about the singers, the comedians, the orchestras and the listings. Don't miss it. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips are either public domain or used with the kind permission of the BBC. We mean to tread on no toes, so if you wish us to remove any clips, do say so and we will humbly oblige. We only seek to operate within the bounds of legality. And we seek to inform, educate and entertain. Stay subscribed, do like, follow, find us on Facebook and Twitter and join us next time for Season 2, Episode 2, the first BBC listings on the British Broadcasting Century.